Our reading today comes from 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 to 15. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore the Lord struck him down, and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has, because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. My name is Adam. Uh, It's great to be with you. I have the privilege to serve as the lead pastor here and to open up God's word for us this morning. Now, last week, we kicked off a a new sermon series that we've called Reign of the King. We're going on an eight-week journey through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. Now you might be thinking, why are we working our way through this Old Testament book? Surely we could be doing something that was a little bit more relevant to our lives. Well, like I said last week, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. And we believe that every part of the Bible is for our good and for our instruction. And we believe that all the different parts of the Bible are telling one big story. The story of God's rescuing, redeeming love in Jesus Christ. And 2 Samuel is an incredibly important part of that story. In fact, just a little plug for next week. Next week, we are looking at a chapter that is one of the most important chapters, bar none, in the entire Bible. In 2 Samuel? Really? Yes. So come next week. But in this series, we are looking at the story of King David who prepares us for and points us to God's true king, the king of kings, King Jesus. 
Now, I hope that you've got your growth group guide with you. If you haven't, you can grab one from the Connection Center. I hope that you're reading the story along with us. I mean, if you're not reading the Bible at the moment, let me just encourage you to read 2 Samuel. There's a a reading plan as well in the growth group guide that you can follow along with the story. Now, last week, we hit play on episode one of this story. And we saw David become the undisputed king of Israel. But we also saw that it was a long and a messy journey to the top. There was backstabbing, beheadings, and betrayal. If you missed out on last week's sermon, I would encourage you to to jump online and listen to it. We saw David's long, messy, difficult journey to the top. But we also saw that God was faithful in the midst of the mess. God was faithful to his people and to his promise to install David as king. This week, as we hit play on episode two, we see David reigning and ruling from his capital city in Jerusalem. And while it's been a good start to his reign, he's defeated the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, not once, but twice. There's also something missing. David is God's king in God's city, ruling over God's people, but the symbol of God's presence was not there. The Ark of the Covenant was still in the south in Judah, where it had been for the last 50 years or so. And so David decides to bring the Ark to Jerusalem. Now on the surface, this sounds like a fairly ordinary task. The Ark was a wooden box that was overlaid with gold, It was only about one meter long by 70 centimeters wide. It might have looked something like that. And so it sounds like an ordinary task to transport this ark from one place to another. But what we are going to see today and what we read just a moment ago is that this task is anything but ordinary. In fact, this task becomes tragic, especially for Uzzah. Now, this story that we're looking at today raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Why was Uzzah struck dead? What is the significance of the ark? More importantly, what dance moves was David busting out as the ark came back into Jerusalem? Now, I'd like to know because I need all the help I can get when it comes to dancing. But while this story actually raises a few questions for us, it actually answers a far more significant question for us. It answers a question that is at the heart of the Bible and that is at the heart of human experience. Let me set it up this way. I've told you before that one of my favorite lines in any book is from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Now, in this book, which I'm sure many of us have read, there's a scene where Mr. Beaver, who's one of the characters in the the mythical land of Narnia, he tells Susan that Aslan, who is the ruler, the king of Narnia, is a lion. Mr. Beaver says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. So Susan asks Mr. Beaver, well, is Aslan safe? To which Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king. Now the Bible very clearly and very often tells us that God is good. 
that he's loving and kind and gracious. That through the finished work of Christ on the cross, we can know the goodness and the love of God. But the Bible also very clearly tells us that though God is good, he is not safe. He is not tame or domesticated or docile. He is not the God of our imagination. He is the God who has eternally existed. He is the reason for our existence. He is to be the object of our worship. The God of the Bible is undoubtedly good, but he's also utterly holy and transcendent, which is why it's not safe for us to approach him haphazardly, to treat him flippantly, or to ignore him or reject him totally. And this is the the truth that we see vividly illustrated in this story. We see a clear picture of the God who is good, but not safe. And really, this story then confronts us with the question, well, then how can we possibly approach this God? How can we approach this good but dangerous God? Is it even possible? Now, I said that this question is at the heart of the Bible because this is the question that Jesus came to resolve. Jesus came to go to the cross, to die in our place for our sins so that we can be made holy, so that we can come before God, enter into God's presence. But this question is also at the heart of human experience because I'm guessing that you have wondered to yourself often, is this really true? Am I really forgiven? I mean, I read the Bible and I see clearly that God is holy and that God is good, but I know from my experience that I am not. I know what I've done. I know what I continue to do. Can I really be accepted by God? Can I really enter the presence of this holy and good God? Now, if you're a Christian, I'm guessing you've wrestled with that question before or you continue to wrestle with that question. If you're not a Christian, you might not frame the question in this way, but I bet you've wondered, am I good enough? How do I know? What's the standard and do I meet it? This is an incredibly important question. And this is the question we'll be looking at this morning. How can we enter into the presence of this dangerous but good God? In fact, the title for for today's sermon is The Dangerously Good God. And we're going to look at this story under those three headings, those three scenes. The dangerous God, number one, the good God, number two, and then our response. So let's begin, number one, with the dangerous God in verses one to nine. Now let me be very clear up front. When I describe God as Dangerous, I don't mean dangerous like a criminal. I mean dangerous like the ocean. Now, when you go for a swim in the ocean, it's exhilarating, it's refreshing, it's enjoyable. But if you don't humble yourself before the power and the magnitude of the ocean, if you don't pay attention to the rips and to the flags, it can have devastating consequences. In the same way, if we don't humble ourselves before God, If we don't pay attention to his will, to his word, it can have devastating consequences. And that's what we'll learn in this section of the story, which begins with David's decision to bring the ark to Jerusalem. 
Now, what was the ark and why did David want it? Well, as I've already told you, the most important thing about the ark was that it was the symbol of God's presence among his people. And this is why the Israelites were to treat the ark with reverence. This is why they were to follow the instructions about how to handle it that God had given them. And this is why we should be utterly shocked when we read what happens in verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart. Now you might be thinking, so what? You know, they needed to transport the ark. Why does it matter that they put it on a cart? Well, this is so shocking because God had given them very, very clear instructions about how they were to transport the ark. Essentially, the rules were no looking, no, or no opening, rather, no looking into it, no touching, and no carts. You see, God had told them that the ark was not to be opened, it was to be covered, and it was to be carried on poles by a special class of priest. This is kind of what it should have looked like. I know it's not a great quality picture, but hopefully you get the gist. Now, this is not what it would have looked like here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, because God's laws are being ignored and overlooked. And we should already be thinking to ourselves, how is this going to end? Now, at first, it was a party. It was a celebration. There's music, there's dancing, there's cheering. But then all of a sudden, the mood changes. The procession comes to a halt, the, the music goes quiet, and the dancing stops. It was a dead body. Uzzah, one of the men responsible for, for guiding the cart, he is lying next to the cart, dead. And nothing stops a party like a dead body. Now, what had happened? Well, in verse 6, we read that the oxen stumbled. The cart shifted and the ark began to topple. So Uzzah reached out to steady it and now he's dead. Now what had happened? Was he crushed by the ark? Was he trampled by the oxen? Well, no, none of those things. Verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, this is an incredibly shocking moment. In fact, I'm reading a, a book at the moment that is kind of a, a dramatic retelling of David's life and David's story. And as far as I know, the author's not a Christian. And yesterday, I got to this part of the story, and she leaves it out. Leaves this whole section out completely. Because this is a shocking moment. It looks as if Uzzah was struck down for doing something helpful. I mean, the ark was going to fall in, in the dirt. What, what should he have done? How could God punish him so severely for such a, a seemingly innocent act? But you and I know, and we must admit, that Uzzah here was not an innocent bystander. He was one of the men in charge of this operation, and this was a shoddy operation. The will of God was being totally ignored. Uzzah did not belong to the special class of priests that God had commanded to carry the ark. The ark was not even being carried as God commanded it. It was being put on a cart. 
Now, the, the depth of this is that this was how the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, transported the ark. Do you remember back in 1 Samuel 6 when the Philistines stole the ark, they captured the ark, they used a cart to transport it. And so the people of God are taking their cues about how to treat God from the enemies of God. So all of this ignorance, all of this disobedience, it leads to Uzzah touching the ark and suffering the consequences. The reason for this tragedy is because God was being treated lightly. His word was being ignored. His commands were being overlooked. And to reject, to ignore God is dangerous. I mean, the Bible is very, very clear about this. To be one of God's creatures living in God's world, but to ignore, reject, or despise God is dangerous. Paul writes in Romans 2 to those who have rejected Christ. He says, because of your stubbornness, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Now I know this is not a popular teaching. I know that this kind of teaching makes people angry. And in fact, this is exactly how David responded to God's judgment. Verse eight, then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. Now, like David, we can get angry at the judgment of God. Why? I think because it reminds us that we are accountable to God, that we are powerless before God, and we don't like that. We like to think that we are in charge, that we are in control. We like to think that we are accountable to no one. But then the Bible uncomfortably yet lovingly reminds us, no, 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 you belong to God and you will give an account to him. Now this is a sobering thought, isn't it? And I think the application of this section of the story is very clear. We dare not play games with a God who is both real and holy. We cannot treat God however we want. We cannot ignore God without consequence. We can wrestle with questions, we can struggle with doubt, we can fight with sin, but we cannot trifle with God. Now David begins to see this, and so his anger turns into fear. Look at what we read, verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Now that question is a good one. How can the ark of God ever come to me? How can this dangerous God, this God who breaks out against sin and disobedience, how can he ever come near to me? How can this holy God, how can I enter into the presence of this holy God when I am so unholy? Have you ever thought about this question? Have you ever felt the weight of this question? Maybe you're feeling the weight of this question for the first time. Well, thankfully, there is an amazing answer to this question. And we see it in the next scene of the story when we turn to the good God in verses 10 to 15. You see, after this episode with Uzzah, David becomes so fearful that he abandons the operation entirely. Verse 10, he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, we're not told why David chose Obed-Edom. 
It's not exactly clear, but what is clear is what happens to him. And it is surprising. Verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. The ark that brought death to Uzzah, it now brings blessing to Obed-Edom. And this tells us that God is not just dangerous but he is also deeply good and that his plan and purpose for us is blessing. And in fact, throughout the story of the Bible, God's plan and purpose for his people is not to destroy them. It is to bless them with his presence. Right at the beginning of the Bible, the story begins with God dwelling with Adam and Eve, humanity in the garden. And the Bible ends with this same picture, but far enlarged. Heaven and earth are joined together and God dwells with his people finally, fully and forever. That's God's purposes to bless and to dwell with his people. And so the question is, well, how do we get there? How do we enter into this presence of God? How do we enter into the blessing of God? And this, we see the answer as the story continues. See, David hears that once the ark has gone into the house of Obed-Edom, he is flourishing. Now, maybe it's out of jealousy, maybe it's out of a renewed optimism, but David decides to go and retrieve the ark. But this time, there are some key differences. This time, there is obedience. The ark is carried as it should be. And this time, there is also sacrifice. Verse 13, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, I think, was beginning to understand that the only way to enter into the presence of this holy God. It was not through our good deeds. We'll never be good enough. It was not through our devotion. It was through the sacrifice of another. And in the Old Testament, this was the sacrifice of bulls and animals. But they were simply pointers to the ultimate sacrifice. We read in Hebrews 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Then in verse 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So getting back to our question from the start, can I really be accepted by God? Can I really enter into the the presence of this holy God when I know what I've done? I know what I continue to do. The answer is amazingly and profoundly yes. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, in his finished work on the cross, you have been made holy once for all. It's done. It's finished. It's permanent. You can enjoy a relationship with a holy God because you have been made holy in Christ. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be devoted enough. You just have to place your faith and your trust in Jesus. The presence of God is dangerous to sin and evil. And this is a good thing. Because there is a day coming when God will deal with sin and evil once and for all. But the presence of God doesn't have to be dangerous for sinners like us. Because he's made a way for our sin to be dealt with on the cross. For us to be made holy and to enter into his presence. And he's done it all for us. He truly is the good God.
And so what should our response be? What should your response be? Well, we see this in, in the final scene of the story. And in verses 14 to 15, we see David's response is to dance and sing. Look at what we read. Wearing a linen ephod, which was most likely a simple garment, kind of like an apron. And a lot of commentators think David was wearing only the apron. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. It's a party again, and David is so overjoyed that he's forgotten himself. He's the king, but not only is he not wearing the royal robes, he's barely wearing any robes. And not only is he watching all this unfold from the throne, he's down among the the servants, dancing and singing and rejoicing. He's so overjoyed in God that he's humbled himself before God. And when you understand the love of God that is given to you in Jesus Christ, it humbles you. It doesn't make you think more of yourself. It doesn't make you think less of yourself. It just makes you think of yourself less. It sets you free to rejoice before God. Your self-worth, your identity, your image, it's not tied to what you have, what you wear, your position. It's tied to who God says you are. And that sets you free, free from the weight of guilt, free from the opinion of others, free to dance in your knickers before the servants. But not everybody saw it this way. You see, Michael was one of Saul's daughters and one of David's wives, and she's watching this all unfold. And she doesn't recognize David to be humbling himself. She thinks David is humiliating himself. Look at what she said. We didn't read this earlier in, in the, the Bible reading. She says, when we read, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. Michael is concerned with reputation and image. She's embarrassed by David's exuberance. She thinks he shouldn't be dancing in this way before the, not just the servants, but the slaves of the servants. Now, what does David say to her? He says, I wasn't dancing before the servants. He says, I was dancing before the Lord. It wasn't a performance, it was an act of worship. And this is our only proper response to the dangerously good God. It is humble, joy-filled worship. Now let me ask you, who do you identify more with in this story? Michael or David? Are you likely to dance before the Lord? Or are you more likely to look at someone else dancing and think, how undignified, how improper, how over the top? Now, I don't think the application of this story is that we all have to dance semi-naked at church. No. (laughs) Some of you looked upset about that. (laughs) I don't think it's even that we have have to be expressive in our worship. But I do think this story forces us to ask the question, do I ever express joy in my relationship with God? Do I ever experience gladness before God that moves me? 
Do I ever want to shout and sing and dance about God's goodness to me? Do I long for more of God's joy and God's presence in my life? And if not, why not? Now, we all get enthusiastic about something. Even those of us who are not that expressive, we all get excited about something. Maybe it's computer games or sports or makeup or shopping or, or children or grandchildren or your career. I mean, we all get excited about something, which is you know, normal and understandable. But let me ask you this. What about God? Does the presence of God ever move you? One person has written, there are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic, but can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? Now, now what does your worship of God tell others about the worth of God to you? The way you sing in church? The way you use your time and your money? The values you teach your children? Your attitude towards church? What does your worship of God tell others about the worth of God to you? You know, Jesus was once having dinner with a, a Pharisee, a religious leader, and a notorious woman, that's what we're told in the text, most likely a prostitute. She finds out that Jesus is in town and she comes to see him. She's weeping and she's washing his feet with her hair. And the religious leader is looking at this and he is disgusted. How undignified, how improper, how over the top. And Jesus turns to this religious leader and basically says to him, the person who has been forgiven much will love much. Do you know how much you've been forgiven? And does it show in how much you love? When you know that you can freely enter into the presence of this dangerously good God because of what he's done for you through Jesus, it leads you to humble, joy-filled worship. It leads to semi-naked dancing. It leads to washing feet with hair. It leads to all kinds of acts of love and service and devotion, which is not undignified, improper, or over the top, but it's our only reasonable response. Let's come before this God now in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have made a way for us to come home, to come to you. Through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and through his resurrection, there is a way for us to know you. Our sin has been paid for once and for all. We are forgiven, loved, accepted, and made holy. And Lord, this fills our hearts with joy. Lord, maybe there's some of us here this morning and we've never responded in that way. We've never placed our faith and our trust in Jesus, in the free gift of life that you give in him. Maybe we want to receive that for the first time this morning. There are others of us here this morning, Lord, and our relationship, if we're honest with you, it's become stagnant. There's no joy. And Lord, this morning, we want to take a fresh look 
at who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. And we want to ask that by your spirit, you might fill us with joy and you might, it might overflow in worship. Oh Lord, it is our only reasonable response. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We will now come to the table for, for Lord's Supper. And Lord's Supper is actually, I think, the perfect response to this passage. Because Lord's Supper, it shows us both reverence and joy. We come to the table with reverence because we see what our salvation cost. The bread and the cup, they represent Jesus' death upon the cross. The bread representing his body, the cup representing his spirit.